This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Hi, listeners. Hello. How are you? Hope everything is going well. Today, I have on Israel Smith, a new, really good friend, I'm proud to say, who is from Australia, resident there, and Israel is doing just amazing work with health and health of all people, but specifically men's health and fathers. Israel tells his story of depression and his path to there and recognizing the symptoms. When I spoke to Israel, it was it was an instant connection because I think Israel is just a, a few years ahead from where I am now, a father, business owner, entrepreneur, I would call him. The, the pressures that come with all of those things while still trying to be a good husband and a good family member to others and a good friend. And Israel's story just, it really hit me because, you know, it, it took him some big eye openers to seek some help and to make change, to make real lifestyle changes. And those changes are a combination of the day-to-day habits that we talk about all the time on this show, and then professional mental health changes. And now he is doing amazing things with his own podcasts and working with men's groups and working one-on-one with, with clientele about how to get the appropriate help and how to take the proper steps towards getting their quality of life back and getting their happiness back. And again, I'm so fortunate to have been introduced to him by a mutual friend. I was honored to be a guest on his podcast and I'm honored to have him now on mine. So whether you are a male and a father or or really anybody, there are a lot of takeaways in this episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. So listen in and as always, please let me know what you think. All right, listeners, I am on with Israel. Israel, one, thanks for being on. Hey, it's really my pleasure. Like we had such a great chat a few weeks ago that it was like a no-brainer when you invited me to come and have a chat again. Uh, you know, I, and that's exactly why I've been so excited for this one. You know, we It's amazing how social media works and how people bring people together, which for us, it was Beverly, who I worked with in a, in a marketing capacity. But, you know, it's, you, you're just doing such amazing work, which we're going to get into that today. But just two dads... Uh, in very similar situations in their lives. And like you said, we had a great talk the first time and I'm really excited for this one. So before I get too far ahead of myself, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I live in Australia. Uh, The accent is not put on. Um, And I I live about halfway between Sydney and Brisbane on the East Coast in a really small little village of about 1,500 people. It was settled because of the amazing surf, which is something that I love to do. So it's a really aligned place for me to live. But I didn't always live here. I lived in Sydney for 20 years. I did the whole corporate rat race thing, you know, graduated uni, went into a job in IT. At like age 22, I was earning six figures and I went, wow, this is amazing. And then about two years into the industry, I went, wow, I feel like crap and I really hate my job and my life is suffering as a result. So after about another two and a half years of working my way out of that, I became a full-time photographer. At the time I was, you know, just dating and then just married my wife, Belle, when we started the photography business. And then six months after that, she decided to join me in that business and leave her corporate career. So we became, you know, the self-unemployed we used to joke about at the time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then from there, you know, we grew the photography business. Um, we had our first daughter in 2006 and then everything was kicking along pretty nicely. Um, we had a couple of false starts and miscarriages between number one, and number two child. And, and that, that led to what we call the, the get fit, get pregnant campaign of 2009. And, um, it was where we both really committed to, for the sake of having a second child, let's get into the best physical mental shape that we can. 
So we started going to a gym, seeing a personal trainer, losing a bit of weight, cleaning up our diet, you know, getting everything into kind of A1 condition so that we could give this second child every opportunity to be born healthily. And um, yeah, we were blessed with our little son in October 2010. And as it turned out, that was the biggest year on record for me. I published two books of my photography. I hired four new photographers and trained them up and sent them out into the world shooting under my banner. And my wife stepped out of the business to manage our son and look after him. And I also completed a full 26 mile marathon. And then by about December, the wheels had fallen off. And so <laughs> I kind of ended up, as you can imagine, right, with that many different yeah. things going at once. Because I ran the marathon, funnily enough, on Independence Day 2010, so July 4 on the Gold Coast in Australia. And for those of you that are interested in running, it's a beautiful course because there's only one bump and it's dead flat for the rest of the, the, the rest of the run. So there's no hills or anything. It was terrific. But, um, <laughs> but the downside of that was that I, I came off the back of that and just was in this training mode and I decided, okay, the next thing I need to do is train for a full Ironman distance triathlon. So let's add swimming and cycling to that enormous running kind of thing. And, and that was a disaster because I ended up getting injured. My body started breaking down. My emotions started breaking down with my body. And by that Christmas, we came away to our holiday place, which is where we now live at Crescent Head. And I was trying to train and I was not present with my family and I was staying up late watching all sorts of crap TV and eating all the wrong foods and just feeling like nothing was working. And then, you know, I got back to Sydney and nothing was really gelling. I just wasn't connected with work and I wasn't really happy. And, you know, and that was where really I, I kind of got the biggest turning point in my whole life, which is where I was diagnosed with depression. I was really non-compass mentis. I was not functioning. I was being a terrible husband, a terrible father. I hated my photography business, even though I'd poured every ounce of energy into it for seven years to get it to that point. I'd, you know, qualified as a master of photography. I was doing great at it. My clients loved my work and I just wanted to give it all away and go stack shelves at the grocery store because I was just so overwhelmed and so stressed and just out on edge all the time. And so that, I look back on that period in my life as the kind of catalyst for everything that's happened in the 10 years since that really was that major inflection point that my life needed because it really helped me reassess what my priorities really were. And up until that point, my priorities were let's make all the money in the world. And you know, who cares if our health suffers a bit along the way and we give up our free time just to keep working and working and working. And then I also was really kind of recommitting to my priority of being a decent husband and a decent father and the best version of myself. But then I also learned through that about the benefits of good nutrition. Now, I spoke about the Get Fit, Get Pregnant campaign. I definitely was watching what I was eating and tracking macros and stuff in the lead up to the marathon, but I still ate a lot of processed crap. And I still, you know, there's there's a lot of ways you can eat and still keep your macros on target. And <laughs> some of those are yeah. highly processed foods some of those are with more real foods, more whole foods, right? So, you know, my wife and I went into a bit of a, a curiosity and, and while on the one hand, I absolutely congratulate anybody who's had mental illness and who medicates to help them function and to help them get where they need to go. My wife and I have always taken a very non-interventionist route when it comes to drugs or pharmaceuticals or anything like that. And we just said, you know, let's just see what else we can work out first. We'll use that as a last resort. We'll definitely know that that's there as a backup, but, right. you know, I didn't need it before this situation. So something's caused me to get to this situation. What can I change? What can I investigate? And so diet was a huge one. Sleep was a huge one, you know, moderating my exercise because I realized I was just burning myself out too much with the level of volume and intensity of training I was doing. Anyway, long story short, we, we kind of worked together to get my recovery on track. We ended up sticking around in Sydney with a heavily re-engineered business and lifestyle for another few years. And then decided that we were at a bit of a fork in the road by about 2013. We were thinking, do we want to invest in property and, you know, try buying a family home, which would have entailed probably a million dollars worth of debt back then? Or do we just want to do something totally random and off the cards and just pack up and travel Australia for a little while and see the country and have an adventure with our kids while they're young and we're young? And so we did the second one. We packed up. We sold our, sold our apartment. We traveled the country for two and a half years full time in a converted 
coach that became a bit of a motorhome for us. We, on the way, we launched and really built my wife's company called The Root Cause, which is all about empowering kids to make better food choices and helping families awesome. do better, which is, you know, I know something right up your alley with health and nutrition. Yep. And, and then we, um, we came back and decided that because we'd learned how to build an online business, we could work from anywhere in the country. Where would we love to live? And we decided on our holiday destination for all of those years, which is now where we live. So, so we've kind of crafted this life and we've been here thinking about, well, this is recording it early December, about two weeks from now, it'll be four years since we settled here and, and we really feel part of the community. We've settled right in and I've stepped into doing my own work as a coach and speaker to support men's well-being and emotional resilience and talking about, you know, what sort of stuff dads are going through. How do we put better practices and systems in place? Basically everything I've learned in 10 years of managing my own mental health and well-being, and figuring out how I can thrive through all of that. And, you know, it hasn't all been straightforward. Like I lost my dad to suicide a couple of years ago as well. So that was sort of a, a little curveball that the universe threw me that I didn't expect. I suffered massive anxiety and panic attacks when we first settled here in this town because it was a whole new world to the one we built traveling. Our cost of living dramatically went up because we were back in a house again rather than just living on the road at free camps, you know. So, But despite all of that and despite the pandemic and all of the uncertainty that's really come through in the last couple of years, I feel really comfortable that I've built a way of living now for me that helps me thrive. I've, I've understood, I've done a lot of work internally, personally, to really understand what do I need to be happy? What do I need to be my best? And so now through all of these crazy adventures and all of the kind of different stages of this journey, you know, I've kind of condensed the last 15 years into about what, five, 10 minutes. <laughs> that's, that's really where we're up to date. So that's kind of my background. Well, and you've given me so much that I want to touch on, but if I go back to the highest points of stress, you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of people walk around with, well, I guess twofold. One, we hear the word stress and those that have really never experienced stress, you think maybe you're feeling stressful here and there. Not that you aren't, but, it, but it's a hard thing to really put into explaining the sensation. But then on the other hand, you have a lot of people who are probably living every day in some version right before the breaking point of where you were. And not, and not just entrepreneurs, but definitely people who have the whole gambit. You're the stress of a new business and how you're going to support your family, plus the family itself, plus kids who are in the middle of trying to be raised, plus the financial issues that go with, with all of that. And then, and then on top of that, physically, you're breaking down because like you said, you have put your own health on the back burner. Even if you are training for a marathon, that's still performance. That's not, it's not the same thing as yeah. necessarily lifestyle health, which is a whole different topic of, of my pet peeve of people that do marathons because they think it'll make them healthier. It's not the same thing. But point being that, that I think there's a lot of us and probably a lot of my listeners who carry so much stress, but they probably still don't realize maybe how close they could be to a true breaking point. So the question in there is, at what point, how bad did it have to get before you're like, you know what, I need to actually go to a medical professional to, to look at that to get an actual diagnosis of, of depression? Were there symptoms in mind? Was it just a feeling? What led you there? Right. So it's a great question. So there was a, there was a bit of an evolution, right? So, so where it started showing up was in my mood around the house. I would start to be on a real hair trigger when it came to my angry outbursts. Little things, tiny little insignificant things that you, you recognize now as a parent are just always going to happen. Like the kids eating with their fingers at the dinner table or not picking up their toys and you tread on a Lego or, you know, like whatever it is, these little things would become the trigger for me for these massive angry outbursts. My daughter at the time was about four, four and a half. I'm six foot four. There's a big height difference. She was starting to feel very threatened and very scared of me. So that started to show up. Um, my relationship with my wife started to get a little bit edgier and there was a little bit more of that tension and that underlying kind of, this isn't quite grooving the way it used to groove, you know, like we'd have little niggly arguments and there'd be some resentments that would creep in mm -hmm. my own personal behaviors through that time. And this is, you know, obviously with any new baby, there's disrupted sleep, but I was also 
disrupting my own sleep. I was drinking stupid amounts of coffee through the day and just riding this caffeine buzz for hours to try and get through what I thought was the workload I had to get through to run the business to make the money. But then I'd have to kind of take the edge off with some alcohol at the end of the day just to sort of wind things down to get to sleep. And I'd end up, you know, staying up watching garbage television until midnight, 1am some nights, get up at five, six in the morning, go to the gym, get back on the hamster wheel of the work, try and function as a parent, try and juggle all the hats that you said, you know, the money and the finances and the business and the relationship and the stuff. And all the way through all of that, my story in my head was I need to protect and shelter my wife from this sense that I don't quite know if I've got all of this together right now. I don't know if I've really got a handle on all of this. I want to, I really want to, the desire's there, but I just can't quite get my head around it. I can't execute on what I think I need to do to try and stay on top of the workload, the volume. So what I should do is just pull back and shelter her from all of that. Right. So in my head, it made sense at the time. But what I realized looking back is that what I was doing was retreating further into myself, connecting with her less, making her more and more worried because I was withdrawing. And she was watching all of these behaviors. She was feeling like she had to tread on eggshells around me all the time. And so that sort of stuff, it just accumulated and accumulated. Right. And it built to the point that when it came time for us to go on our family vacation, we usually left on about the 27th of December. So we'd have Christmas day, boxing day, we'd alternate family houses for that. Then the 27th, we'd go away for two weeks. And at that point, I felt like I was holding on by fingernails. I felt like I was really not far from the edge of just slipping and losing myself or losing my mind or something. I didn't know what it was, but I just remember that image in my head of like, I'm holding on by my fingernails here. And as we've spoken about, I was kind of stretching myself in every different direction, physically, um, intellectually with my business growth, with the structure of our family, the responsibilities, the desire to earn more money to help cover the fact that my wife was no longer in our business working, all of these things. So that's what it felt like. And then when we returned from that vacation, we came home to, because I was so busy in the lead up to our Christmas season, I didn't do any marketing proactively. We had no work to come back to. So I came back to just a whole lot of drains on the bank account and the business finances that we'd built up in November, December suddenly just whittled away to nothing by the end of or the middle of February. And I was thinking, God, all that effort I just put in is just straight back out the door. Awesome. Right. Great. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah, Perfect. Great. Just what I want. You know, just, just another thing to add to the list. Right. And then there was a point where my wife said to me, I don't know what's going on with you. We would, we would argue, we would argue about the business, about the direction we were taking, but she said, I don't know what's going on here. And you're not talking to me for the first time in our marriage. You just don't seem to be able to talk to me or you don't want to talk to me. I don't know what, what's going on there, but I know that you need to talk to someone. So for God's sake, will you just pick up the phone and talk to somebody? And so I thought about it and I went, okay, I love my wife. I respect her perspective on this enough to just take the action she's telling me to take here. And I rang my stepfather because he and I, like my dad at the time, like was alive at the time and, and he and I had always had a great relationship, but there was always, as with our parents, often if they're not really conscious of this or aware of this, there was a lot of heaviness of expectation in how I lived my life that would filter every conversation I had with him. And I always felt this desire or this need to measure up. So I could never have a completely unguarded off-topic conversation with him. With my stepfather, he was invested in my well-being, but he just had a different approach, a different take. And, and I just felt more at ease to just have a really blunt conversation with him. And I called him and he said, hey, what's up? And I thought to myself, as he answered the phone, I thought, I just need to actually say what's going on here. Because if I don't, nothing's going to change. And it was that, that moment there where I just said, you know, I just need to have a chat. I'm just not coping. I'm not coping. And those three words were literally the changing point for me because I admitted for the first time that I wasn't all right and I didn't have a handle of it and I didn't know how to get around it. I couldn't figure it out. And he gave me the most beautiful and most simple advice, which was, okay, so here's two choices. The first choice is figure out what the problem is and fix it. Second choice is if you don't know how to do that, get some help to figure out what the problem is and then fix it. That's the path you've got in front of you. It's one of those two paths. I went, wow. That's just so profound. That should be on like greeting cards and stuff, you know, but it was, <laughs> it was, 
<laughs> but it was the, it was just that simplicity that he's always had that knack of of just being able to boil and distill things to such simple concepts. And I went, wow, it literally is that simple. And I've been banging my head against this problem for months, and I can't figure it out. I've got to get help. There's no other path forward here. And then I spoke to my wife about that, and then she, in her amazing wisdom and skill did some reading and researching online so i was a portrait and wedding photographer so that call i remember distinctly was a friday the next day was a saturday i had a wedding photography gig for a couple i was photographing their wedding i was out most of the day like from maybe midday to like seven eight o'clock at night or something i think i was shooting for these guys and so i got home from that utterly spent totally exhausted collapsed on the couch you know and and my wife had made me the most amazing dinner, brought it into me on the lounge and I was sitting there watching some shitty television show, eating food and just trying to kind of unwind from an emotional roller coaster of a high day on a wedding, which was just a buzz I used to really love and thrive on. Mm-hmm. And she said, hey, listen, after dinner, can I just chat to you about some stuff? And I said, yeah, no worries. So, you know, so I ate, she fed me up beautifully. I was nice and sedate by that point. <laughs> Smart, <laughs> very, very smart, very, very smart. Strategic then, move, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh, right. And, you know, I think there may have even been like a beer or a nice soft drink or something just to kind of right. butter me up a little bit and get me into a good mood. But then it was just a case of she said, "Listen, I, I and very, very gingerly, very tentatively, she said, I just I read some stuff today, and I just want you to take a look at it. I don't know if it's you, I don't know if it's not you, but just can you just do me a favor and just read this and see if it resonates." And she handed me her laptop and I had to read through it. And it was a survey. It was like one of those like mental health self-assessment quizzes. And it was on, it was an Australian charity called Beyond Blue, which is all about depression, anxiety support. Uh-huh. And it was the Beyond Blue website. And, and so I read through this survey and answered the questions. And the immediate impression I got was, oh, my God, they've literally articulated on the, on the screen in front of me everything that I felt like I've been feeling for the past couple of months and I couldn't put it into words until I read the words. I was like, that's, that's it. That's exactly how I'm feeling. And they went, okay, if you answer more than X number, you might want to chat to a GP. There's a really, really high likelihood you're experiencing depression. I went, wow. Okay. I said to my wife, I said, well, I've just maxed out this quiz. So I guess I'm probably a prime candidate for depression. And apart from that sense of acknowledging that that was like a, um, It was like they'd scraped out my brain and just laid it out in front of me. The other part was, oh, other people have self gone through this. Other people have suffered this. This is not like, I'm not the only person who's felt like this. You know, there was that huge relief of like, this is, it's a condition. There's, there's prognosis, there's treatment, you know, like you can get through this. It's documented. I was like, oh, thank God I'm okay. You know, like I can figure this out. There's a path forward. Right. So, you know, within, I think the very next day i rang our local medical center it was a sunday i left them a message they rang me first thing monday morning hey we've got an appointment open at this time can you make it yep i'm there dropped everything went down and met with the doctor and i said to him mate you and i barely know each other because i'm never sick i'm never in here i said but here's what i think i'm experiencing he says well i'm not going to disagree with you because like you said i don't know you from a bar of soap he said so sure if you think you've got depression and you've done a bit of research on it and that's what's lining up for you okay here are the treatment plans here's what i can offer you here's a prescription for some drugs here's a couple of referrals to psychologists and then in the same medical center they had a psychologist who by some fluke had a cancellation and was available to see me that afternoon and i went oh let's do it let's just get this show rolling straight away and so by that afternoon she did a quiz with me oh yeah as it turns out you've got the highest stress and work-related kind of stress out figure I've ever seen on this quiz assessment. It's like off the charts. Okay, good. So I'm not an idiot. I I have a validation that there is something going on here. You know, this is real. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that, that irony of like, it's all in my head, but in fact it is all in my head. So, um, (laughs) but so, so we, we had that and then, then the real work began of me understanding, okay, so this is a thing like, I need to sort of unpick what's led me to this point and I need to work out what the next steps are and I need to, you know, get my network around me to acknowledge and work with me on strategies here so I can get out of this hole that I'm in. So so that's where it went to. So, you know, for your listeners, if you've experienced anything that resonates like what I've said, absolutely have a look at some of those self-assessment stuff. And, I mean, I can email you the Australian quiz. I'm sure there are great resources in the US and Canada and 
all the rest of it to support that sort of thing as well about like self-assessing for mental illness. But yeah. Well, I, and yes, please do, because that would be helpful. But I, I even want to take a few steps before that, because I think it's important for, you know, for, for listeners, everyone to, to really peel back the layers on the process that got you to help. Cause you know, one, one, your willingness to seek help, right? That's the big thing. And especially, you know, the stereotypical male, and this is a hot topic, especially in the States right now of, you know, men need to be better about, about getting help, um, right. which is absolutely true. Right. Um, so one, your willingness to seek help. That's the first thing, right? It's if you're not willing to admit that there could be a problem, you're, you're already, well, de- you know, dead in the water for, for lack of a better term, but, right. but um, also who you, who you talk to first, because in your example, you very easily could have maybe spoken to someone you knew the answer you were going to get. So maybe it would have been your dad, or maybe it was a friend who would have told you, suck it up. You're probably fine. It's just a tough point. Everyone goes through tough points. You'll get right. through it. You know, and, and whether on purpose or not, if you don't have the right circle, the right person in your circle to get you the right advice, maybe you wouldn't have taken the second step, which is, the actual professional that got you get, could to the next, to the next point, you know? So Absolutely. I think it's important for people to understand who is in their circle and who's the right person to go to, not to hear what you want to hear, but to keep, but to maybe hear what you don't want to hear, to maybe hear the right. rough response or the rough answer, you know? And, and then the second point is kudos to you on, you know, a, a lot of people, maybe when your wife walked in the room and handed you this pamphlet, how many people, again, are not willing to actually read it or not will, or at least not willing to read it with an open mind? You know, I, I think we, again, I'll, I'll pick on men more than, more than women, but any, but human people are naturally defensive. We're men, we can take it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, and we're naturally defensive, right? Like as soon as you right. get this, it's like you take it as this shot to your ego and the shot to your mm. pride and what you're not capable of handling. Like, you know, by, by you handing me this pamphlet, it's like you telling me that I can't handle taking care of my family and, and working hard and, you know, the multitasking that takes to be it. So just giving you credit here that you had the open mind that when a loved one came to you and had the courage to go to you, which probably took her a lot of courage to say, Hey, I'm about to bridge a really tough conversation with my husband that you took it with an open mind, read through it, and had the perspective and the willingness to say, yeah, I do identify with the things that are on this page. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I really, I, I really received that. It's actually, a, um, when I reflect back on my life, I've always been the kid that everyone said was really sensitive. You know, I've always been the sort of person who wore my heart on my sleeve, really felt things deeply and had that sense of what I've come to understand now of being a little bit of an empath of being able to sort of read or, or pick up on emotions in an environment. One of the reasons I used to love weddings so much is because it was like surfing this wave of love and happiness. And it was just awesome and very addictive, but I could also always pick the discord. I could always pick the relative who was about to cause some shit to go down. So that became a really useful way for me to intercept to make sure I was pr- providing like a bit of a protective bubble around the bride and groom in those days, you know? Yeah. And I also, I think I also credit like my wife and I from a very early place in our photography business together, always asked for help from professionals, business coaches, mentors, advisors to help us move things along. And I think that mindset and that appreciation for just how quickly you can move through problems and challenges when you get a couple of really kind of important points to kind of lead you in the right path and to maybe stop you going down six or 12 months of stupidity and wasted time and money, that can make a massive difference. So I think I'll, I'll kind of say absolutely, you know, I will take the credit for I was the guy that, that got the help, but I also had learned a few things about asking for help in a professional and a business context. And I suppose it's a good parallel to draw for those men who are listening, who maybe think that when it comes to personal stuff, asking for help is like an absolute admission of weakness and failure. 
But how do you approach it in business? Or how do you approach it in your job? If you can't figure something out and you want to be your best self in the workplace, do you ask for help there? And my guess is, my gut feel is you probably do because it's not about you. It's about your role in the company or in the business that you're in. And so they're willing to go, oh yeah, like I'll, I'll ask for help from my accountant to figure out how to read a profit and loss, or I'll, I'll ask for a marketing consultant to help me reach more customers and make more revenue. Like, you know, those sorts of things seem to be, there's no stigma attached because it's all about chasing bucks and making money and, you know, being excellent in your role in your career. But I want to kind of ask the question for the guys listening who may be feeling threatened about this prospect of receiving that pamphlet and going, what do you mean? I'm failing or I'm not enough here or I don't have it all together. It's actually a sign of courage, bravery and strength to receive that and to look at those things and to be willing to look at the stuff in ourselves personally, emotionally, the messy stuff of being human. It's a massive sign of strength. And that V word, vulnerability, you know, not the V word everyone else has been talking about with COVID, the vulnerability <laughs> word, being vulnerable, I've come to really understand, takes a, like a ton of courage and strength because it means in a way we're opening our chest, we're opening our heart and that cavity and that bit inside us that's our most raw, our most exposed, and we're inviting people into that space. and. Here's the catch 22. If nothing changes, nothing changes, firstly, right? But then on the other hand, opening up your heart and being vulnerable requires risk. There's no way around that. It is a risky move. So it kind of comes to a piece of faith. And like you said, choosing the right people to have in your circle to sort of go, okay, who can I trust here? Who can I feel like I can be my most raw, most vulnerable self with? Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a coworker who you have a really deep rapport with. Maybe it's somebody totally anonymous on like a support chat line or somebody that you can speak to where you just bypass all of it and go straight for professional support that's utterly anonymous and private. And that's totally fine. But we can't heal this stuff unless we're willing to risk. In the same way, it's like an absolute parallel, right? When my wife and I were first dating and just first kind of teetering on the edge of falling madly in love with each other, she was married before we met and was going through finalizing the separation and divorce when we started dating. And for the longest time in our early relationship, she was one foot in, one foot out because she'd just been hurt. She'd just come out of a broken marriage. She was really reluctant to jump fully in and fully commit to our relationship and to our burgeoning love, the, the budding kind of romance we were, we were enjoying. And we had this conversation once where, you know, it was like that. What I would love to say was just, I was just such a wise guy, but I probably read it somewhere and just regurgitated it. But it's that thing that you can't love without being willing to risk losing that love. It's just not possible. Right. Even the longest, most amazing love story in the world still ends with death and loss of one person in the partnership. All of us who are married, Either we're going to die first or our partner's going to die first. The likelihoods of both of us just dying at the exact same instant when the, you know, the nuclear right. bomb drops on the doorstep of the post office. Right. Right. So yeah. holding hands in bed, yeah. probably not going to happen. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like all that, like that notebook, right? Where they just, yeah. and they just die, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> right. so, so the likelihood of that is, is next door to zero. Yeah. And yet we still go for it. We still go, you know what? The risk is totally outweighed by the pleasure of the reward of being in love with somebody. And I would argue the exact same thing. The risk of vulnerability, the risk of opening ourselves up to these difficult conversations is totally and utterly outweighed by the benefit of learning more about ourselves, becoming more connected to the people in our world and healing whatever trauma we've got to heal so we can be a better person. Absolutely. Uh, you, so this is comparable. In the training world, personal trainers have just this reputation for wanting to be the ultimate help to their clients. And, and, this, and this, this point I'm making speaks to your point about it being courageous when you can admit that you need help. Like that's right. 
So again, in the personal training world, it's it's very common where you never want to you never want to see it or know because that means you can't help the person in front of you. That means they have to go elsewhere for help, and that makes you feel like a failure. So in my edu- you know, as in my education days, being able to teach and mentor trainers, a, a common point I make is saying I don't know is actually the most powerful thing that builds credibility with your clientele. And it's a lot of trainers at first, it's such a backwards way of thinking for them because they think, well, how can that be? I, they just asked me a question. Now I have to say, I don't know. Well, then what are they hiring me for? When your client asks you about an injury or about a mental health question or about just, or really just anything, an exercise, and you have to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. Right away, there's a connection that happens that that, that client feels more attached to you and more loyal to you because if you're willing to say, I don't know, but I want to get you the best answer possible. So I'm going to go outside of our box, our personal box to find it. It might mean asking the trainer across the room. It might mean find you a referral for a physical therapist or for a psychologist, whatever it might be. But there's just something very powerful about saying, I don't know, saying I need help and admitting I, I need something that is outside of my immediate handle and control. So I just I just found that to be a very just relatable situation because it's something we talk about a lot in our industry. Right. I mean, it's you're absolutely right, and and it's actually admitting I don't know. We get so scared of that. We get so so afraid of. It's like a shame response. I'm I'm ashamed. I'm not enough you know i'm broken that's whatever right so that that shame response that we have instantly triggering in us around those things the experience of saying i don't know is is that little opening of vulnerability because we do open ourselves up to judgment but you're right in my experience personally and this is why i talk so freely about just how crap i felt at the darkest days of my depression, just how much I had to go through to heal and recover from it. And I have no problems with answering anything about any of it because every time I do it, it brings me closer to people. My vulnerability is like a magnet to let people feel like they are okay and for them to feel so connected. And I get the biggest gift from that connection. The very first time I spoke in public about it, we had a um, so I was still in the photography industry. We had like a, an annual conference event and each state that would host one, it would cycle through the different parts of Australia year after year. And so ours was hosted by our state and the local chapter that I was a part of and like the vice president of at the time, we put on like a little pre-session the night before the big event kicked off. And I had 10 minutes and 10 slides. We had, it was a, called a decathlon event. We had 10 speakers, 10 minutes, 10 slides. That's a similar idea, I guess, to like TED Talks, right? Like it was just bang through a whole bunch of stuff really quick. <laughs> right. And, and so in that 10-minute chat, there's about 150 people in the room and I spoke about the back-to-front nature of our industry, about how we put our lifestyle last. We go after the money and the work and then maybe we fit the family and the kids around there and then at the very end of it, we think what's our lifestyle supposed to be like. And I shared about the fact that I'd just been diagnosed with this depression. I'd come through the other side. I'd re-engineered my life. I had people coming up to me, and this was like a 10-minute conversation. It was the shortest speech. People came up to me, you have just changed my life. You have just changed my life. Like, And I was like, wow, really? And they said, yeah, yeah. Like, first of all, I'm not alone. I too have experienced depression. And to see it validated and expressed in that way just made me feel so much more human and normal. Right. And then secondly, I can see now from what you've just shown me that I have had my priorities completely wrong. I've been focusing on all the external stuff when what I really need to do is focus on myself and my health and my well-being, and then that will help me be better everywhere else. Anyway, that's just one story. That was the first time I did it. And that just made me feel so confident that every time I get vulnerable, it results in other people being positively impacted and improving those connections. Uh, To everyone listening, you're not alone. Like people are really not, and and the more you hear stories, the more you do what you and I are blessed to do for a living, the more you realize the similarities between almost every story. You know, I, I I think I know how often I tell people like, oh my God, this is so relatable. This is so relatable. (laughs) There's details that are off, but we've all, you know, everyone has their struggles, but things are so relatable. And you're right. The, the more, the more you realize that, the more comfortable you feel with 
your stresses and with your depressions and with you know whatever it is you're you're going through. Um, the world loves community. The world loves connectedness. You know, it's why it's why the the best rehab places work, right? Because what they do really well is they make people realize like you're a part of a community that's done this before, and if other people have gotten through it, so can you. Right. Um, so There's I love that sense of belonging. Yeah, absolutely. And now you have examples of things that work when you don't have your own example yet. Well, I have not conquered this yet, but Israel did, or this person did. And and now that I've stacked up five other examples, well, now the odds of me getting through this, now all of a sudden, I feel like they're maybe likely versus when I thought I was alone. And it's like, how can I, I, I just can't envision a world where I get through whatever it is I'm going through. So I think that's a perfect piece of advice for people to start too, is if you're not willing to really seek out help yet, at least just go listen to other people. You know, oh, maybe sure. j- j- just listen to your podcasts, you know, and, and the other dads that you get to talk to. And I heard you had a really good episode recently with a guy from America. And I'm just saying, but <laughs> no, um, right. But I think that's Most a good place downloaded. to start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I saw zero downloads so far. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you get the point. But um, I think it's a really good place for people to start. If I could transition slightly, you know, we, we've talked so much, and, and I appreciate you how you know how open you are about sharing so much of this. I'd like to get a little more specific with some of your day to day stuff. You know, if you go when people have been, please go go visit you know Israel's uh, in, Instagram. But a lot of your posts talk about the word habits and lifestyle and and the day to day things. You know, you mentioned how aware you are a lot about, about what your day-to-day is like, what makes you feel good the next day, what doesn't make you feel good the next day. And you had a, you had a topic in one of the posts that talked about being able to identify not only the habits that you want to build, but also the current habits you have that don't serve your life and don't serve your purpose. So my, my question is, is you know, can you talk about maybe Maybe both. Do you have an example or two of the habits that at some point you realized didn't have a place in your world anymore and that was a struggle, but you needed to get out? And then the other hand, you know, what what important habits really helped you day to day? You know, I know you talk about meditation a lot, so maybe that's one of them, but you know, wherever yeah. you want to go. Yeah, no, look, spot on. And so the the first thing that popped into my mind, and you know, we spoke before we hit the record button about my absolute sweet tooth. So I have <laughs> have always been a real sucker for sweets, right? So chocolates and lollies and candy and all of the stuff. It's been like, it's like my kryptonite. It's my weakness. I just, I find that I have a very, very difficult time when it comes to self-control around sweet foods. I just love it. Having, and, and I mean, that's partly, probably partly my upbringing because my mum's a bit that way as well. And then partly my first career in IT because it was quite common for me to have the kind of the 2 p.m., 3 p.m. slump and I would go to the corner store and get like a Coke and a Mars bar, you know, like a candy bar and a, and a, and a, a, a Coke or whatever. And yeah. Or an energy drink when they first started coming out, you know, I was like yeah. hitting them like crazy. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was, that was something that I discovered served me for a little bit and then it stopped serving me. And I went, Oh, I really, I love this in the moment, right? Like the actual experience of eating sweets feels great at the time, but I started to recognize I felt garbage the next day because my body was just strung out from like trying to process all of the sugar. My energy would slump not long after eating it. So I thought, oh yeah, I'll have this because it'll give me energy and you get this really intense spike. And then half an hour, an hour later, I'm like nodding off at my desk. Um, so that was one of those ones where I went like, this just isn't working for me. It's just not, I need to build better habits about this and I need to, I need to release this, this behavior. And, and so the simplest thing that I've learned about this is that our habits are actually, our most effective habits come from like an identity level thing. Right. And this is something that I've, I've picked up from, um, from James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, which is mm-hmm. amazing. Great book. And I'm right. And I'm only like partway through that, but it's already just been revolutionary for me. And I I heard him talk on Brene Brown's podcast. And so, you know, no surprise that someone, a man who talks about vulnerability follows Brene Brown, like everything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right. Right. But, but, um, 
but that idea that our habits are best when they come from an identity level. So, so that one for me, I went, all right, so I'm currently being the guy I'm identifying as the guy who just has a real sweet tooth and who loves sugar. And that's not getting me where I want to go, which is to feel like I have level balanced energy to feel like I don't have this sort of hangover feeling the morning after eating a lot of sweets and to not feel like I've got the growing love handles and the sort of middle age spread kind of thing, you know? So I'm 44, the metabolism's not what it was when I was in my early twenties in IT. I just can't smash down the sugar anymore without it turning up elsewhere on my body. Right. So, so there's that another habit that I realized was doing the same thing to me was the habit of having my phone next to my bed on the nightstand, right on the bedside table. I would use my phone as my alarm, but because it was right next to me, the temptation of I'm laying in bed and I think about something, Oh, I'm just going to look that up. I grab my phone and then suddenly I'm firing off that dopamine response in my head and I'm another 15, 20 minutes of scrolling social media and I'll just check what other notifications I've got and I'll check my email and then it's like half an hour later and I'm on my phone again and my brain's wired again and I'm not asleep. And so then I put it down and then something else and like, oh, I'll pick up the phone again. So that cycle used to repeat for me. And then it's like 10, 30, 11 at night. And I'm like, no, no, I'm committed to getting good sleep. This doesn't align. And then the next side in the morning, my alarm goes off. First thing I do, pick up my phone, turn the alarm off, start scrolling Instagram. I'm like, hang on a minute. That's not what my life's about. I'm, I'm committed to having a different experience here. And so my wife, fortunately, was already at the shop. So I said, hey, would you mind just like, I really want to break this habit of doing this thing with the phone. Can you just buy me like an, an alarm clock so I can leave my phone out in the living room? And, and she went, all right. And then she rang me and she said, my God, do you know how expensive alarm clocks are? <laughs> Because no one buys them anymore. No one buys them, so they have to jack up the price. (laughs) That's right. They're making like, you know, a fraction of the volume they used to churn out of the factories. Right. But I sorry, go on. No, that's fine. But there was there was a couple of nuances to it, right? So I didn't want one of those old school ones with like the two bells that just goes and like wakes up the whole household because (laughs) I like to rise early. So I thought, okay, five a.m. I don't want to suddenly jolt my teenage daughter and my eleven year old son out of bed at five in the morning. That's not going to work. So that was one of the resistances I'd already already had because I was able to put my phone on to vibrate or onto like a really low volume ringer that would wake me up sometimes would wake my wife up, but she was okay because she was getting up about the same time, but would never wake the kids up. So that was always a barrier. And then I went, no, you know, we just need to plug a few in. So my wife said, okay, I'm going to get the guy. We're going to plug a few in. We're going to test it out. And then she found the one that was like $70 or something. So for a bloody alarm clock, it was just so expensive, but it's really soft. It's really gentle. And it means I can wake myself up without having my phone right next to my bed because that habit just didn't serve me. (sighs) Yeah. I, sorry, I'm I'm nodding my head because <laughs> I, I've just not that this wasn't already a goal, but I just finished reading. It's called Peak Performance, which if you haven't read it, it's a really really good book. But one of the major points, he has two major points, but one major one he he says throughout the book is don't put don't just put your phone on the other side of the room. Get it out of the room. Mm-hmm. Get out of the room. And everything you said is exactly why I have not bought my alarm clock yet. Well, I mean, well. I can put the volume low. You know, I, I have a, I have a business that opens at five. So just cause I'm not there at five doesn't mean, well, maybe a trainer, like maybe something's going to happen. And I have to like, I keep justifying all these reasons. Right. And for the amount of times I've actually had to have my phone by me. I, I mean, every time it's all it happens is middle of night. If I have to go up and go to the bathroom, like I'm still tempted, at least I'll tap it to see what time it is, which alone is just not necessary. Just go to the bathroom, go back to bed. Whatever time it is, it is just go to bed. Right. Or I'll wake up and I'll waste the five minutes that I could have been using to get ready and get to work earlier on scrolling. But Mm. I I literally just wrote alarm clock down on my note page here (laughs) because I'm promising you on this podcast that after we get off, I'm going to jump on Amazon. I'm going to buy it. But that was the other thing too, was the noise. I'm like, I feel like I'm just going to, I'm going to wake up my toddlers and those toddlers wake up and then I have to leave for work. Right. I can't come home again because my wife is going to kill me. She's, right. Right. It's like She's dropping gonna... a bomb in the house. You're like, okay, bye. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I got to go. Enjoy. Enjoy the. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just left the Chernobyl for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I can never come back home. I might as well move to Australia with you if I try to pull that up. <laughs> so. So just so you know, you're you're changing one life at a time. And as of today, you also made an alarm clock salesman a sale because I'm gonna right. 
I'm going to so, buy that today. So thank you. So you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> so what that looks like now in our household is we have the furthest corner of the living room, right? So, so our house, you walk into one wall and then the living room is right there. Then the dining room adjoins that. Then past that's the hallway and then the bedrooms. So the furthest place in the house from the bedrooms, we have a PowerPoint with four USBs and four telephones. Well, my son's is not really a phone. It's like an iPod, right? But he listens to music on it. That stays well out of his room. My daughter, she's 15. Her phone stays over there from about 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night. My phone, my wife's phone. We are all, no phones in the bedrooms. And that was always the case for the kids, but we used to do the exact same thing. Oh, we need it for an alarm. Oh, we need to do, you know, quietly, whatever. My wife and I now have the exact same alarm clock. Um, it's a Sony one. It's great. But I will say that even on the lowest brightness setting, it's so bright that I've had to get like card and stick it over the front of the thing. So I can still read the time through the card, but it just cuts the brightness down. So the room's dark, but man. Right. They're all, it's all that thing though of like, well, what are you committed to and, and what actions are you willing to take in the same way? Like, are you committed to having a fit, strong body? You do the extra reps. If you're committed to getting your phone out of the bedroom, you stick the sticky tape with the piece of cardboard over the front of the, the alarm clock. You know? <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh, well, so answer, was, yeah. Go on. Well, saying, as you're talking, I'm still thinking of justifications. I'm like, what if I had to call 911? What if, you know, what if someone broke into the house and I like, hey, my phone next time? But, so, I'm, <laughs> so I'm still doing it as you're talking, but I'm, I'm going to keep to my promise. I'm going to buy it and I'm going to use it. It's been but, a game changer. It's been okay. a game changer. I'm, I'm, I'm going right. to do it. I'm going to do it. Good. All because right. So now yeah. I leave my phone on airplane mode overnight. So it doesn't ring, doesn't buzz. If anything really urgent happens, I'm sorry. They're just going to have to wait because I'm so committed to my sleep. I'm not going to function as a normal human if my phone's pinging all through the night and waking me up. So I need my sleep to be my best. So that commitment there is yeah. that trumps everything else. Whatever family emergencies happen, I can deal with it after 6 a.m. Yeah. And then the habit then becomes, well, how late can I leave it before I pick my phone up? You know, like 7.30, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. What else can I do? I can read a book. I can meditate without my phone and without insight timer. I can just shut up for a bit and close my eyes and breathe, you know, like there's all these things you can start to experiment with and play with anyway. Awesome. But that was, that was how I shifted those habits. And it was by finding replacements when it comes to the sweets, going back to that identity piece in the, in the atomic habits book, he talks about, and you've probably used this with your clients, but he talks about this, this friend of his who lost hundred pounds purely by asking themselves the question, what would a healthy person do? Yeah. And using that as a frame, okay, would a healthy person order the burger and fries or would they order the salad? Would a healthy person get in a cab for six blocks or maybe take a walk, live a little early and get some exercise? You know, take the lift, take the elevator versus taking the staircase. Like all those things. I think about it, okay, would would the healthy version of me pull into the McDonald's drive-thru on the way home? And I literally had this conversation with myself two days ago. I play basketball on Wednesday nights. Would... Would, would the healthy version of Israel pull into the drive-thru and get a cheeseburger on a Sunday after my basketball game because I just kind of feel like it and I love how sweet the Sundays are with the extra hot fudge on the top and bottom, right? <laughs> right. No, I probably wouldn't. I'd probably just keep drinking the water bottle that I've got in the car and go home and have something healthy before I go to bed. Yes. Right. That's, that's the <laughs> thing, right? Like what's the identity? Who do I want to become? Yeah, I, I love that part of the book too. And that, you know, his other example for those who haven't read it, read it. It's I've read, I, I think just about every habit change book I can I can get my hands on. But it's and to this day that is my favorite of them all, and it really is. So in that he also talks about the smoker, and and his whole point of the identity thing for those who haven't read it is if a smoker identifies as someone trying to quit, they're still identifying as a smoker. I'm a, mm. I'm a smoker just trying not to do what I always do versus am I a person that doesn't smoke? And, and if I really identify as the person that doesn't smoke, my perspective on my day-to-day choices completely changes. So I hear, right. you're right. He had the, he had the hundred pound lost friend who talked about food and they had the smoking example. I'm sure mm. he, he might've had another one now. It's been a while since I read it, but, but, I, but I love it because it's such a powerful tool of you're still identifying as the person you're trying not to be. Well, that means you still are that person. And until you identify yeah. as the person you want to be, you can't become the other side. 
Right. It just, it leads to that cognitive dissonance, like that conflict in our brain where we want to be something other than the way we think of ourselves. And we're like, well, hang on. I think of myself as this. I think of myself as the sweet tooth. Therefore, I'm just going to go get the Sunday, damn it. And you know, whatever. But right. no, I actually think of myself as the healthy person. Therefore, I'm going to make a better choice in alignment with that identity. So yeah, it's yes. really, really powerful as a frame. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, su- super, super powerful. And, and now, and now you're taking the things you've learned and you're helping a lot of others. So can right. you talk can you talk more about that? Can you talk about your your work now with with men and men's health specifically yeah. and what you're doing, please? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first thing I realized was, you know, when I went through this journey, I'm not the only person to have ever gone through it. But what I do have as a bit of a superpower is my willingness to be totally open. Like I can like rip my chest open and say, here are all the really good bits of me and here are all the really crap bits of me. And I'm really happy to talk about all of it if it helps somebody else. So that, that vulnerability superpower thing that I have meant that really early on, I felt really drawn to speaking more about my experiences because I could see that it was going to help other people. And then my wife and I started the health business when we traveled the country, as I sort of mentioned, and yeah. I took on like a, a you know, technology management admin kind of role in that business. She was the face of that company building the content, the workshops, the trainings, and I was the guy doing the business side at the back end. But after a little while of us settling in the town we now live in, I kind of realized, and it was through some coaching I've been doing with my own coach, who was amazing, but it was just, I sort of realized that I just wasn't quite fully lined up. I wasn't quite living like every day was just something that lit me up nonstop. And I said to my coach, I just, I feel like I kind of need to coach men i just feel like there's this this thing in me and it had come up at various points in my past you know that that famous question if money was no object and time was no object how would you spend your days what would you do with your life right like that's if you ever feel like what's my purpose sit down for an hour take away all distractions and think about that question because that will start to point you in the right direction it might not be the answer but it will certainly give you the first couple of steps along the path and that always came back to, to me, I would help men experiencing what I went through. Because if I can stop one guy from going through that absolute crapshoot, great. You know? So, so from that, I said to my coach, I feel like I just need to coach. She said, okay, so you're waiting for what exactly? She said, there's this thing called Facebook. You can put a little post up and invite people to have a session with you and it won't cost them anything and it won't cost you anything. And you just maybe both invest a bit of time and see how it goes. And then you know whether it's something you really want to do or not. I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. I've been called out here. I kind of need to do this now. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the next day I put a post up. In fact, no, same day I put a post up and I just say a bit of backstory. Here's where I think I'm at. Here's what I'm feeling like doing. If this resonates and you want a thing, I'm going to make five one-hour spots available to five men. Come on down. And within 12 hours, I booked seven. I went, wow, I've got to turn off that link because I'm just getting overloaded here. And I really went, wow, there's something in this. And so those men spoke to me about all sorts of things from issues around, you know, problems in their marriage, problems with their workplace, um, a sense of like not being the dad they wanted to be, a sense of like not being able to take actions that they knew they should take. But there was like such a chronic lack of self-esteem and self-worth in there, like all the stuff. It's just, it was, it was a, at the same time, it was heartbreaking and so inspiring and exciting to me because I felt like I could help. And every single guy that I'd met with said, wow, that was actually great. I really valued that and I learned so much and it's given me so much to work with and go on with. I was having those meetings in our bedroom in our house before we set up this office we're in now. And I'd come out of the room after each call, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And my wife was like, man, I haven't seen you that lit up for like the last three, four years in this business that we're in together, I think what you're doing in that room is actually what you really need to put your energy and attention into. And, and uh, it, was a, it was a hard conversation from the perspective of we committed to working on this business together and growing it and it meant some follow-up hard conversations about, well, okay, what's it going to look like for me to step out a little bit and to start to hand back or hand off to delegate some of the other roles that I've been playing in that company so I can do some coaching some more. But now... I'm, you know, one day a week in my wife's company, probably for the rest of this year and maybe the early bit of next year. And then I'm going to be kind of out and I'll be full-time coaching one-to-one with men. 
I got a couple of women in my client roster, but primarily men, primarily dads in business, in leadership, in their own lives, wanting to be better dads, better husbands, wanting to be more aligned with what lights them up and feel like they have a sense of joy. Some of them are wanting to get some guidance because they're going through what I went through 10 years ago with the depression and my anxiety and other stuff. Some of them have been kicked out of the home by the missus and they're like, wow, I really got to change something or else I'm mm. not going back home, you know? So it really varies, but it just makes me so happy because I get to have these chats with these men. It's a very safe, very private environment because it's just one-to-one. It's not like we're having a big kind of conversation in the town square where everyone needs to know what's going on for them. And I, you know, I can say with all modesty and humility, I am actually really good at it. I'm really good at holding space for these guys and, and helping them identify this path forward that they can take. So to me, and, and I, I think the other piece I want to add to that is that what drives me to do it is not the dollars. What drives me to do it is this knowing in me that as men, we are losing our life three to one to suicide compared to women. Mm-hmm. We are the perpetrators of the vast majority of domestic violence against women. We are also the people who hold the biggest levers in companies and in government and in other leading organizations around the world to change the planet, to change society, to really reshape our culture as a species so that we can all just be a little bit better and a bit happier and a bit safer and have a planet that we can exist on beyond the next hundred years. Right? Like it's really, it's such a powerful position that we hold as men. It's our responsibility to do this work. It's our responsibility to dig into our dark corners and heal our trauma and our hurt so that we can be more compassionate, more kind, more loving, more gentle, so we can resolve what causes us to be angry and start to funnel that energy elsewhere and, and, you know, feel our anger, sure, but don't use it as a tool to hurt others, right? Right. All of that stuff, that's, that's, for me, that's the why. That's the why am I doing this work now? That's what gets me up in the morning, knowing that the little ripples that I can make, and I've started doing some speaking gigs about this sort of stuff too and about everything I've learned because I don't know if everyone in North America has noticed, but we've been having a pandemic and the world's been completely uncertain for the best part of the last two years. And who knows what 2022 is looking like with new strains and new variants and all the rest of it. But the whole prospect of being able to thrive through uncertainty, being able to roll with everything chaotic in the world and still be our best self, still show up with a sense of love for ourselves, with a sense of love and generosity for our fellow man and our family and our kids And to be able to know and trust that even if everything gets turned upside down tomorrow, which it might, we don't know. (laughs) Right. Even never know. Right. Right. Even if everything gets turned upside down, because we've actually done the work to connect in with ourselves, we're going to be okay. Right. Uh, Well, it's, it's such, it's so important. And I can attest just from our handful of conversations that you are very good at what you do. Cause you know, I, I know I, you're very good at helping people, relate to the story that you have and um and, and to want to make change because i know you've done that more than i even told you yet um for me so you know i'm looking at time i want to respect yours i i want to thank you for for being on and if you could just tell people the best places to find you absolutely look thank you too for what you've said and you know when we maybe when we wrap up you can tell me how else i've impacted you let alone the alarm clock uh, conversation I, yeah. um, <laughs> But you know, but that's a big one. That's a big one. It is. It's huge. It's a huge game changer. I tell you, you know, everyone out there, buy a damn alarm. Just get the alarm out of the bedroom. We're going to turn that industry around. (laughs) (laughs) You and I. (laughs) Have to partner up with some Swedish alarm clock makers or something, you know, or some Swiss Swiss alarm clock makers. Yeah, insider trading. We're going to buy stock right before we. We, we skyrocket this industry. <laughs> That's right. So yeah. if you want to get on board with Mike and I, no, the best way to reach me, yeah. the best way to reach me is my website, israelsmith.com or Instagram, Israel P. Smith. So I-S-R-A-E-L-P-S-M-I-T-H. 
Awesome. So that's got all the links, all the places, all the things. There's podcasts, there's, you know, blogs, there's stuff, there's articles, there's random spouts of ranty pants from me. It depends on what sort of day you get me on. Sometimes I get really passionate, enthusiastic, and sometimes I feel a bit more considered, but as we all do. But I'm here to help, you know? So if I can help, then please look me up. Well, you know, listeners, and this is a form of recap too from this conversation. Start with listening. Israel's got some great podcasts. Um, he's got some content on his social media pages, on his website. Start by listening, start by looking in, and then just like Israel did, hopefully that propels you to take the next steps to, to ask in the right person for some advice and then seeking out the professional help from there. So Israel, again, thank you. Please stick around. Listeners, go check him out. All the information will be on the website in the show notes. And uh, please never hesitate. Always let me know what you think. Israel, thank you. And everyone else, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at marhealthandperformance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day and see you next time.